Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. According to the book of Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud. Love never fails. And of course, if this were consistently true, we would be robbed of the books of my guest and best-selling author, Diane Blacklock. Within Di's world of contemporary romantic drama, love is instead a series of misunderstandings and stolen moments of random chances and difficult choices, where patience is tested, kindness forgotten, and her character's lists of wrongs often the dark keys that keep us engaged. According to the book of Blacklock, Love is hard and love is all too often easily lost. Hello, Di. Hello, James. That's a great introduction. <laughs> Why do we feel the need for our romantic heroes to suffer so much for our entertainment? Well, we wouldn't have a book if they didn't. That's what it comes down to. It's conflict, isn't it? Uh, any story. You don't have a story without conflict. So if it's a story about relationships and people, um, then... The conflict has to be interpersonal. Romantic drama has been a key part of fiction you know, for centuries now. Uh, what drives you to stay within that genre? I don't know. Um, I, I mean, mine go a, a bit broader, but but I always do have a love story in my books. It engages me. So um, I do have relationships between family members and work colleagues and. Um, children and parents and all kinds of things. So I like, I like relationships. I like people. I like the way they relate to each other. Um, but yes, though I've noticed some of my, uh, peers in women's fiction will, you know, there won't be, um, a romantic story in, in their books at all. I still find that I like that element. So I suppose that's what drives me. I enjoy writing that element. So therefore, uh, it's mostly included. Mind you, my last book, um, the couple were already together. So it's not always a romance as in the people getting together, but it will be um, usually some kind of story involving a couple. Well, many of your books seem to start at a time of flux or lead into an enormous period of flux for whether it be individuals or a relationship. And it, it seems to be d about choices and the choices they make. And how, how difficult is it at times, perhaps, when, when telling a broader story of a relationship, to not only make choices that are engaging from a fictional point of view, but also one that we can relate to and actually accept from our heroes or heroines? Yeah, that's sometimes difficult because people get very squeamish about things like adultery, for example. Mm -hmm. But, um, you, you know, I don't know how you can live in the modern world and not be aware that that happens. I'm not condoning it in writing about it, um, but I'm also not necessarily judging a person who does that either because we're all human beings and we're all you know, we're all flawed and I think that quite often um, adultery, cheating on people, the issues that happen in relationships are, you know, a, 
about bigger things. Well, your books, your books seem to be more of a platform than a soapbox as such. And I think that, yeah. that must be a very careful line to take at times, especially when you're starting out in writing, that people, when you're establishing a voice for a new author. And I mean, you know, you've been writing since 2000 and you're, you've published nine novels to date, all extremely successful with more, more to come. Mm. But how do you get to that point where you go, okay, this is my voice, but it's also not my opinion? Yeah, that's a hard one. I think um, people will always assume that it's it's your opinion and, and also that it's revealing something about your life. <laughs> so, uh, you know, from back in the beginning, I can remember having a joke about four-wheel drives and all my friends with four-wheel drives thought I was having a go at them. I said something about beards once and <laughs> and it was like, oh, so you don't like beards? And, you know, all my sons have beards. Like, it, it's crazy. That, that does seem to be the strangest thing to pick up on, that you would have <laughs> issues as opposed to adultery and <laughs> yeah, beards. Right. And beards, but, exactly. but but let's, you know, on the world of social media, let's take it down because of beards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I think that um, uh, all you can do is, you know, say it again and again that this is fiction, you know, I'm drawing on the things that I hear around me and, of course, my own opinions will be in there but I don't necessarily want to say which ones they are. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you write contemporary drama and so they're set in present day, but therefore also you must be stealing from your friends on a regular basis. You must be a dangerous person to know as an author. <laughs> That's what friends have said when right. we've been out for girls' nights out and that sort of thing. They go, you don't have a microphone around here somewhere, <laughs> do you? Um, sure, I mean... That's exactly right. The people, you know, when you're writing about people and relationships and all kinds of relationships, obviously the people that you spend time with um, are going to be wonderful material and things they say. But you never, I've never written a character and a single person's story, you know. Um, I've put elements in and you make a patchwork because in real life no one's stories are that, a lot of stories are very interesting and you wouldn't believe that they're real life, but, you know, most of us are living, you know, day to day and you're not going to just track somebody's whole life completely. Well, that, that's something that I'm, I'm quite intrigued by. I mean, given the nature of the stories you're writing, you are taking the mundane perhaps yeah. and and making the most of it. And that, and that can also be, I know I've used the term romance, you're not writing romance novels, but those close encounters within the mundane, meeting over the photocopier, those chance encounters in a corridor, you know, washing up and making an enduring, engaging moment of a couple at that time. I mean, do you go looking for these things or how do you find them? Um, I, it's a, it, I think all writers would say, you know, that um, they don't know how ideas come to them. They just do. I've compared it in the past to, because uh, you get this, uh, type of question so much that um, I realised that somebody who is a, an avid foodie, every time they go and have a meal out in a cafe, every time they're having something with friends, if they buy a sandwich from somewhere and something intrigues them in the taste, because they're a, a, a you know an avid foodie, say also, and they cook they'll want to reproduce that, they'll want to find a way to do it themselves or to, or have their own take on it or whatever it might be. They just think of things in a different way. Um, I can sew and I used to sew a lot more than I do now. Um, and so you'd look at things, you know, if you liked it, then you were going to go and make the same thing. Um, but you'd probably make it, you know, you, you'd adjust it to yourself. 
you might make it in a different fabric because you wanted it, you know, a different colour or whatever it might be. So I think because you're a writer, these things are happening around everybody. Anybody could pick up on the ideas that we do. But because we're interested in writing and we're interested in stories, they hit us in a different way. So a little snippet of conversation that we hear or or um, a story someone tells us, we can see how that can become It's the interpretation of that, of what's around you in many ways, and then yeah. the idea, to, the, the ability to express it, I guess. Going back to the sewing analogy, though, mm. how does that work when you are, you know, by your own confession, you're an avid reader. Mm. How dangerous is it to read other fictional pieces of work without that informing your writing as well? Yeah, look, it, it's an issue, but... Writers really should be reading. It would be like the sewer, never looking at anything that anybody else made, you know. Um, it would be impossible to, you know, create clothes in a vacuum without seeing, you know, seeing what's happening around you. Um, and there's a quote, and I can't remember, I think there's variations of the quote that there's seven, there's only seven storylines or there's only 12 storylines or there's only five. Yeah. I can't remember how many it is, but there's a finite number. And we'll all bring our own thing to it. And, you know, I know when uh, I'd ha I'd be having an idea for my next book and read a book and realise that they were, you know, they had the same background or, you know, characters had the same names or whatever, the premise was similar. And I'd get all fretful about that and think that I had to change things. And then I realised over time, well, now I edit, so therefore I'm reading a whole lot of books all the time. So if I froze up and thought, oh, no, I can't do any of these things, well, then I would never write again. Um, and I've also realised from some very experienced and very successful authors that they're grabbing stories from everywhere, but they know that those will be individual once they write them. Yeah, no one can tell your story the way you do. Exactly. Yeah. It's quite intriguing that you still hear, I wonder if you do too, people who say, I want to be a writer. And the first question is often um, from authors, well, what are you reading? Mm. And, and how does it feel when they say, well, I don't like to read, but I'm going to be a writer? Can you have one without the other? It seems... No, no, definitely not. I've just been um, completing a questionnaire for uh, a young lady's blog who's interested in writing and one of her questions is what what is your main advice to new write people that are interested in writing aspiring writers and I always say read and I'm not the only one to do it it's it's, it's almost boring because we all say the same thing you know you've got to read you've got to know um and it's not just about knowing the market in that market type way but knowing uh what's out there what works in a book I've edited some books from individuals who are self-publishing and you can tell they don't actually even know how to write, write a story. You know, they, don't, they haven't worked out that you have to have an arc that, you know, rises to a... To, um, because you are taking people on a journey of discovery. Yeah, you're, that's you've right. Got, you've got to take someone from point A to Z. If you put them back exactly where they start, then you've got essentially sitcom TV. Because That's nothing right. changes in a sitcom like Seinfeld or Friends or something like that. They all remain exactly the same. But in a book, by the second or third chapter, it's going to kill you. Yes, that's true. You know, and I just think, yeah, and maybe there is too much, you know, that they're, they're, they're taking in uh, television and, and other forms of entertainment and that's informing them in their writing. I don't know. But I think 
surely the more that you read, you're going to get a handle, you know, by osmosis. Mm. Um, and that's an understanding of words and structure and story. That, you know, on the line as well. I mm. think sometimes I think, have you never read anything written down? <laughs> because, you know, there's, yeah, quite basic structural things that they don't, on the page that they sometimes don't get. I mean, they can be fixed. And if someone has a compelling enough story and, a, you know, a, a, a truly original voice and, a, and, a, and an amazing story, then a publisher will overlook some of the problems on the line. But my, the, what I advocate is that why would you give them any reason to cull you, you know, if yeah. you make everything as, as good as you can get it, as good as you're capable, and it's your, it's your, it's your art form it's your expression why wouldn't you try to improve it in every way that you can as anyway let's go back and look at where you started and how you did you were one of six kids mm -hmm. growing up in the st george sutherland shire of new south wales <laughs> that sounds like an enormously loud family oh certainly certainly <laughs> and uh, yeah there's no one quiet in my family <laughs> And so, and was reading uh, a part of your lifestyle? I mean, one of six kids. I mean, what did you all do? I mean, yeah. Well, I was. Um, I had an. <clears throat> the, my sister's the eldest, and then there were three boys directly above me, and then it was another five years till the next sister came. So um, it was very raucous, and it was very sports oriented because of the boys. And my dad was a mad sports um, fanatic, um, and I wasn't. <laughs> And, I mean, I played netball like girls do, but um, I wasn't. But nor did I have the kind of uh, direction of, well, you'll do ballet, die, or you'll do, you know, other things, girly things. There was, you know, not a lot of money. Yeah. And it wasn't really seen as very valid to do any of those things. So I think books, I was renowned in the family as a bit of a bookworm. Mum, to her credit, would take me to um, the library on a Saturday morning, you know, when she would, was out and about getting the groceries and all that, and she'd probably leave me there when I come to think of it. But that wasn't a bad, you know, yeah. I was, you know, a, primary a school age and, by then and different, yeah. and she used to just kind of leave me and I'd come back with my pile of books and be nagging till the next time that we could go to read. So I think reading, I, I was an outgoing person as well it wasn't like I was um shy and and keeping away from people but reading was a huge escape I suppose and just filled my mind I think that's what I loved about it do you remember what some of those stories were or some of those authors who really captured you at that time and, and took you on that journey of reading well, when I was very young, it was like everybody else. It was everything Enid Blyton did, you know, yeah. and, the, and definitely your famous fives and secret, secret sevens. Sixes. You know, oh, secret sixes. Secret six or secret, secret seven? seven, I believe, James. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I stayed with the famous, famous five. <laughs> right. um, but it was, uh, and you know, why we related to English children in the countryside eating lashings of cream buns and whatever else they did, <laughs> ginger beer and what have you. But I think it was stories about children and they were in control of what they were doing, you know. So you know, The fact that the parents were irrelevant in many parents ways. Parents were irrelevant. You know, they were, they were yeah. unleashed into the world to disappear into the countryside on their bikes and although they use the term rather quite often, <laughs> That's right. they still solve crimes. That's right. That's right. And, um, I, and I just think uh, the, even the very Englishness of it probably made it quite appealing that there was this lovely... 
um, dancing language, you know, um, a little bit different to the way that we spoke. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was those kinds of books that I loved and that, oh, you know, I wouldn't be able to remember all the sorts of titles, the Millie Molly Mandys and the um, all those stories, Heidi, you know, all the traditional stories that were around. Yeah, Lewis Carroll child, and things Lewis like Carroll, that. all yeah. of those. I just absolutely adored all of them, yeah. As you, you know, went through school, you know, obviously a love of English came through. You went off and did a Bachelor of Arts, majoring mm -hmm. in literature. What was your time at university like? Um, it was great. Um, I loved English. I actually did a, as much of a double major in English that my degree would allow because first year English was um, common to everybody and then you branched off in either language for second and third year or literature for second and third year. But I did them both. But because it wasn't three full years of both, because the first years combined, um, it didn't count as a double major. And I loved it. I loved um, I think I was lucky the at the time that I did it, although it was a very, very, very hard course and a little bit old-fashioned. And so things changed. The year after I left, things changed and a lot of the more interpretative sort of theoretical-based study came up of texts, whereas we were reading quantity. And so it gave me the chance to read ver a lot of the canon and um, I'll – you know, I'll always be grateful for that. And is that a foundation which you sort of draw on still to this day in many ways? Now, the reason I ask about university life is also because you started writing or at least were published much later in life. Mm. Um, you know, I think your first book was at the age of... of 40, 40, yeah. So your professional career in that space really began, you know, let's say 20 years later. Mm. Did it stay with you? Was it a driving force at the back of your head of this is something I want to do, I want to be a writer? No, I, I, I never uh, I never interpreted it that way. I just loved books. Um, I I think coming from the family that I did, I was the first I was number five and I was the first one to go to university. Um, and the only one. Um, and only the the first one to go on at school and then my younger sister went on at school as well, but then she didn't go to university. So and there are a lot more writing, there's creative writing courses now. Even journalism wasn't taught as a degree at the time. You know, it, I think it was still very could... dependent on cadetships and yes, things like that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And um, so there were, wasn't that kind of path. And I think even, you know, even at, at, at my, I always hate saying, you know, in my day, but because I don't think I'm that old, but... <laughs> <laughs> But um, I've already it's... broken the cardinal rule. I should <laughs> demonstrate you're forty when That's you got published. Right. So. This is all ending badly now. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, but I, you know, I think everyone would agree that things have changed phenomenally mm. in the last couple of decades. You know, so that in that period of time, um, you know, when I was at uni, you couldn't have imagined that there would be degrees in creative writing. Like, I mean, I'm sure I would have leapt at that had it been around. Um, so you did the foundational, but I'm glad that I did what I did, but you did those foundational kind of, um, courses and, you know, being a woman, um, teaching was probably, you know, the main thing that people, why are you doing a Bachelor of Arts majoring in English? Oh, I guess to teach. 
but I never did do the uh, diploma of teaching on the end um, postgraduate because I got married and then um, what I did know back then was that I wanted to have children so I started having children got them out of the way <laughs> no no but I mean I did but, I, but that I, was a genuine driver for you having children yes oh absolutely absolutely I I was obsessed if you ask my mother I used to write lists of children's names draw houses with rooms and where they'd live and you know everything I used to want to have 18 children and I had names for them all and everything. Is this because of Enid Blyton as a, as, <laughs> yeah, by been. putting all could've the been. series together? Could have been. I don't know, you know, um, you know, coming fifth in the family, you're used to having a lot of people around you. So, and we had a bit of a troubled, you know, upbringing through my teen years and so on and um, mum and dad on again and off again and everything. And I think that perhaps there's a bit of wanting to create your own your own family and mm. and um, love it and make it strong. But, you know, maybe I just loved babies too because uh, and kids because I really did love it and I think I was actually good at it, yes. you know. So um, I think that's probably a valid thing as well. And I, I think perhaps, you know, stepping away from writing, but certainly we've seen a change in attitude towards mothering or mothers, I should say, and, and looking after children, which is you can be fantastic at it and it's fine to be fantastic at right. it. That is a job in itself Yeah, being a mum yeah. or dad. Yeah. I still think, I, st I still think, well, I think that there's criticism on both sides. There always is. You know, the women who work, you know, get criticised and the women, you know, doesn't matter what women do, they get criticised. <laughs> that sounds like a bit of a moan, but. It's there. But I mean, some of the, a lot of that comes through in your books as well. Mm. You know, you you've really detailed rich lives of professional women, and some of the uh, difficulties and challenges they've faced has been that choice between a relationship and a career, or or taking both, and then being open to the criticism of others, mm. um, and having to find a, a security and sense of self to actually just go, mm. no, 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 this is this is my right, this is where mm. I'm going. I mean, how much do you think of that is your, is your opinion? I, mean, I know we've just talked about it. You don't try and let it come through. But do you think that's inspired a lot of that, that attitude towards women that they can have whatever they damn well want? Yeah, no, I think it, I, I think it definitely has. Yeah, I don't necessarily, like I said, I don't necessarily try to um, um, put messages or whatever in my books. However, being a woman and growing up in this time, um, when I stopped and had children, uh, I expected, you know, this was before social media. So, yes, of course, I still watched the news and read newspapers and everything else. But you weren't as imbued with things as you are now. Like you can't, you know, it's constant. It's around you all the time. Um, and so I brought up my children, all sons, to be expecting to join a world where women were equal yes. <laughs> and, you know, their peers, you know, and we will have none of this. And I was never a mother staying home to be their servant. I was a mother staying home to care for and nurture for them, but uh, nurture them, but um, to also train them to be independent and so on. So that was all really important to me. And I've emerged out this other side and gone, what happened? Did everybody <laughs> sleep for 20 years? Because, and I don't blame that on women. I said that to a... Um, uh, really uh, um, amazing feminist recently 
um, and I think she took a she took it as though I'm accusing her. Why is it women's fault? It's not women's <laughs> fault, but it doesn't. It just when you see some of the ugly conversations that are going on, and you see uh, what happens to women when they when they speak up or when they have any what's happening in the US. Well, we see it in the exactly. Right we see it in the political debates. We we Absolutely. had it with Julia Gillard and her appointment, mm. and certainly more the way she took power yeah. within Australia. Um, and then we also see it now with the Hillary, Hillary mm. Clinton run. Over and they're the using US. some of the same. Um, they've got them printed on T-shirts and pins. Some of the same um, horrible remarks they made about Julia Gillard, and I just I don't think that you can be a woman writing or having any kind of voice without that informing things to some degree. So, um, and in fact, the book that I'm working on now, it's only a, very much only a working title, but it's called The Mother Vine and it's because it's set in the vineyards. And I read this um, snippet online about the mother vine when they're, training the vines along the trellises and they start with the mother vine, they have to cut that off or else it sort of goes wild and they have to cut it off, start it again. Like, And I I saw that as like, child, you know, having children, you cut and you, you cut them off and they have to grow anew and they have to start or else things go wild and crazy um, and it can't be tamed. So I thought that was a wonderful little metaphor in there that, but I'm a lot of what I'm thinking about in this book and I haven't gone very far is about mothers and their children and the effect on them. And, and, and that's not with any blame at all. It's about discussing this and seeing uh, when people should take personal responsibility for the way their life works out as well but the impact that mothers still have, yeah. There seems to be a great deal of um, accountability within, or at least the need for a greater accountability within the discovery process of many of your lead characters. Um, that they that arc that you're talking about, they often have to go on and take on board the decisions they've made in their past to move forward in their future. Hmm. You know, how much of a journey did you take when you've gone through the writing period of nine books? You know, uh, during your fourth book, you went through some very personal changes. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think I've discovered that I'm quite a conduit. Um, I don't think all writers are like that. I think a lot of writers can sit down and they go, boom, I can just write and keep it quite separate from um, me as a person. You know, not them as a person, that's not quite right but a little bit more divorced and it's a job and it's um, something they obviously really enjoy and are good at it and everything else, but they, it's, it's got a different place. Whereas I think, I, I, well, I've discovered that I am quite a conduit. So whatever's going on at the time is often very much um, informing my writing. So yeah, I was going through a separation and trying to write this book and feeling kind of a bit lost and, um, so what? although my publisher was prepared to work at it with me, I preferred to shelve that one because I think that it just contained too much. I just didn't like it anymore, mm. you know. I think if it's written in that time, yeah. Can writing be a form of therapy? Do you think perhaps in many ways it was locking in what you're experiencing? So to then put that on the shelf is almost like putting it away to <sighs> then start afresh? Yeah, perhaps that's true. I hadn't probably thought of it like that, but I think that that could be true. And I think... Or I think also letting go of trying to fix things, you know, could have could have been part of it that I was confused and my head wasn't, um, my thoughts weren't focused and and so on. And I, and it, 
I don't want to go through and work that all out, you know. <laughs> Instead, I just want to go, no, let's move on, you know. Um, I was able a couple of years later, a couple of books later, to cherry pick things out of that book because there were some great characters that I really liked and I liked their backgrounds and I liked um, a couple of incidents. And I remember when I submitted that novel, my publisher saying, um, oh, that scene in the bathroom with the da-da-da-da, you know, and that was so affecting. And I said, yeah, and that was directly out of that other book. <laughs> and she went, oh, I hadn't even remembered. Which again goes to show you that stories, you know, the patchworks that we put together will be something completely different. And, and great stories find a home eventually. Your know, great ideas eventually find a home. It could be 10 years between or three books between, but they will come back to you in many ways. Yeah, I think sometimes, yeah, I think I've found that a couple of times because the book that I recently finished was um, something that um, had been hanging around for a long time as well. And it seemed like every few years when I picked it up, it still engaged me and then I'd work a bit more on it and then it'd have a slightly different feel and so on, you know. So I don't think, yeah, I I know there are people who say, oh, the books that we, you know, discarded, no, no, never look at them again, they're terrible or anything. But, um, but I think that there can be some value. And the one that I'm starting on, the vineyard one that I'm just uh, doing some early work on, um, it started off as something completely different. And again, a while back, you know, um, and it didn't take as that, but it's gradually found its feet, you know, in uh, where I, in the way that I want to tell the story. So, yeah, I think that can happen. You spoke of being a conduit and putting obviously a lot of your emotion into your writing, so therefore you're feeling it as you go through, mm. whether, whether you're aware or not. Let's go back to when you first tried to get published, which was during, I think, your your second child or pregnancy yes. of your second child, and you went to publish a Mills and Boone novel, which was pure romance. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. That's you know, in, in, its, in its, its finest form. Um, and, of course, this is prior to e-books, so mm. this is, you know, before... You know, anyone could put out, you know, 200 pages of, you know, bodice ripping pirate action adventure <laughs> and put it up for 99 cents on That's Amazon. Right. What was that experience like? Because you've admitted previously that it, you didn't put your heart and soul into that book. It may have even been a more materialistic yes. ambition. Absolutely. And, and, and cynical to some degree. That might not be quite the right term, but yeah, my girlfriend came to me when I was pregnant with my second baby and said, um, I think we could make a bit of money, you know. It's a bit like a part-time job. We can both write, so why not um, Why not do it this way? You know, she knew that I wanted to be home with my baby. She hadn't started having kids then. And so that's sort of what we went, yeah, and we thought it would be fun, mm. you know, because it is. I mean, it, it would be. It would be like if you're a good knitter or a, like I used to make a bit of money on the side from sewing as I was referring to sewing before. So it's something that you can do and you're creative, so maybe we can do it like this. But back in that day, <laughs> in the dim, dark past, there was no internet, so you had to go, you had to actually write to the UK to a, find a out A less there. forgiving world of fiction. <laughs> yes. Um, and, yeah, yeah, you had to write to England to get the sort of guidelines for writing a Mills and Boone. And which are quite tight. Um, and, you know, and then we, we developed a story and wrote a couple of introductory chapters as they expected of you and sent a synopsis, sent it back over to England. 
and then got just a flat out rejection. Um, not even, yeah, try again or it was just, no, it was just no. <laughs> rude letter to follow. <laughs> so, um, my friend, fortunately, and I have, um, I always acknowledge her in my books. She said, look, I think we should go on and we should write what we want to write, not to a formula or not to the expectations of that particular publishing company, which I'm not criticising because, hey, look how long it's been going mm. and um, they're huge. Um, but she said, let's write what we want to write. So we started to develop a story and it was like a wonderful creative outlet or hobby for almost the next decade, I'd say. You know, our lives kind of went where they were going, but this was this lovely thing I had, and but it was never finished. And then it was my friend was going to England and she found the discs and because they were floppy disks. There were things called floppy disks, children, <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> and said, do you want these? And Because I, I had all the loose papers, you know, ha- scrawled papers um and I said yeah and it just came at a time in my life where for the first time I had um a couple of days to myself a week so I had been home with children for 13 years and gone back to part-time teaching when my son was um just going to preschool you know so I could go the other couple of days oh, I could go the couple of days that he was at preschool and and um and then he started school so that I had two or three days work and I had those other days actually free. And it was phenomenal. And it was in that period of time um, that I finished it. I just, as a hobby, you know, just I'll load up these floppy disks and have a look and I'll, you know, and I edited it and everything and I finished the story and I enjoyed it so much that it just brought back. Was it like almost like a veil being lifted? You suddenly went into a world of going, I can do this and I enjoy it. There was a richness involved in this? There's definitely a richness and definitely um, a feeling of how much I enjoyed it because going into the workforce um, after so many years home with children and I'd gone to teaching at TAFE Communications and I loved being in front of a class and I loved talking and I loved, you know, having that interaction and I loved that people had to listen to me. <laughs> Four kids growing into their teenage years, it's oh, quite the, good to the have. The disease of the author, love me, love me. <laughs> That's right. And, and you have to sit there and listen to me even if you're not interested. Um so I was really, I was getting a lot of personal satisfaction from teaching and, and feeling competent in it. Um, I mean, I, I so enjoyed being home with my children and I don't regret a moment of that. But, to, but you know, there can be a lot of criticism levelled at stay-at-home mom, mothers or suppositions made about them. Mm. And sometimes even from people, you know, not that far from me, there were suggestions that I couldn't do anything else, which is, you know. So when I went and and was able to step into a um, teaching role and everything, that sort of changed people's opinions. And boy, did it change them once I got a book published. I guess that's it, there is no greater revenge or driver than success. <laughs> success, yes. exactly. So um, I felt a lot of satisfaction that I was yeah. capable and competent of doing things, even though I had... You know, I had great personal satisfaction in bringing up my children and seeing them grow into um, wonderful people. So 
that was all good. And then, um, so I hadn't expected, and I had actually spoken to a woman. I met a woman at a preschool um, event who had been trying to get a book published for years, but did a lot of um, pieces for magazines and that kind of thing. And I said to her, so I would have sounded like one of those people. Because I said, oh, I've got a book that I... <laughs> of which point, just, the party dies. <laughs> she, she was probably just cringing inside. But I really did have one. But um, but I said to her, I can't imagine, you know, being at home and writing and not, you know, I love so much being out around people and um, I, I don't know, it must be a hard life. And she was saying she's... She was a bit more introverted, so she enjoyed it. And then, it, but it was that period of time that you were just asking about when I just immersed. And yes, I had the family around the rest of the time, so it was a lovely um, contrast, you know, to have those couple of days totally immersive. It's I when writing is working, it is like meditation because you just completely go into that world, and that's the only thing that you're thinking about the characters' problems and what's happening to the characters next. You're not thinking about you and the issues that you've got so yeah it's great well Di thank you so much for coming out of that world to talk to me today and we'll have to come back when the next book is on shelves sure that sounds great thank you Di thank you James and you can find copies of Di's books online and in stores this has been Conversations with Writers I'm James Rickards and please connect with us via Twitter at ConversationsWW or find us on Facebook Thanks for listening.